Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Face to Face. This is a show about change and about what's next. It's a show that wants to ask questions, peel back the layers of our average everyday experience, and go beyond scratching the surface. We interview amazing people with incredible ideas and stories who have done wild, weird, and wonderful things. Remember that imagination shared creates collaboration, and collaboration creates community, and community inspires social change. I'm David Peck, and this is Face to Face. My next guest is Commissioner Marie Wilson. She was a commissioner on the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in Canada from 2009 to 2015. We talk about victims of harm. We talk about politics and about the whole notion of empathy and racism and the residential school system. We talk about uh, the day of settlement and, 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 and how we did nothing uh, with respect to this, uh, this national crime. We talk about calls to action and about getting involved and how this really is uh, a nonpartisan issue, this idea that, that reconciliation is not going to be solved overnight, that the, there, there's a lot more going on here than meets the eye. But we also talk, uh, and, and, I, and I know you're going to be, you're, you're going to connect with this in, in a big way, but we talk about hope. We talk about what's next and we talk about how to uh, tackle uh, that ignorance that we may uh, see around us with regard to these, you know, important and, and sensitive issues. Marie Wilson is coming up. Uh, Commissioner Wilson is coming up in, in, in just a few moments. Uh, DavidPeckLive.com for more information about my, uh, my own speaking and other uh, podcasts and my writing. Also, uh, Rabble.ca for more information about a whole other slew of podcasting uh, and interviews as well. So do stay tuned for Commissioner Marie Wilson. Well, welcome to Face to Face. We are joined by a very special guest today here in Toronto on a very drizzly day with a severe weather warning uh, awaiting us, I think, as we step outside. Um, Dr. Marie Wilson is here with us today. Actually, Commissioner Wilson is here today. She's speaking at an event at the University of Toronto Heart House tonight. Commissioner Wilson, tell us why the title. Tell us a little bit more about that. Well, the commission, um, which I was part of, I was one of three commissioners, and I say past tense because our commission started in 2009 and we officially wrapped up our work in December of 2015. Um, but it's, uh, I, I think it's important because the work that we were involved in was historic in Canada, was indeed historic in the world. 
uh, we were unique as a commission and what was very important about it is that it was a commission created through the advocacy and the hard work through the Canadian courts of the victims of harm. Most commissions are set up by governments and by political initiatives and that was not the case in this case. And so I feel it's a, 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 the title commissioner is a way of underscoring and not letting any of us forget the significance of this work, um, the incredible um, devastation of the history that required the creation of it, and the survivors who are really at the heart of that work and who fought so hard to have a Truth and Reconciliation Commission in Canada. So you say the victims of harm, so this was driven by the victims themselves. Yes, um, as we know over the years of residential schooling in Canada, which was a government mandated, government imposed um, system for Indigenous children in Canada for over 130 years. And uh, 150,000 children went through that system and um, in the 90s and then leading on into the early 2000s, um, some 80,000 of them eventually found each other through the courts in a, in a number of individual oh. court cases that then became regional class actions that eventually became the largest class action court case in Canadian history. And there were 80,000 people represented in that class action. And they were the, when I say victims of harm, they were those who brought case against the federal government and four national churches who ran residential schools on contract to the federal government and therefore imposed these laws and policies which uh, they and their parents and their communities had absolutely no say in. And so what happened to them, first of all that forced removal and secondly um, the isolation and loneliness of their lives in a foreign culture with mm -hmm. imposed language and religious practices and traditions. Um, before we even begin to talk about the quite rampant nature of the various abuses that took place in the schools, uh, those were all things that were identified as harms, first of all, in their minds and hearts, uh, but secondly, by the Canadian courts and said, indeed, great harm has been done here. The settlement was um, negotiated out of court, as it turns out, because of the volume of people and the fact that uh, so many being senior now would not have mm -hmm. lived to see mm -hmm. the day of settlement. So there was an out-of-court settlement, and um, and the heroes of the story then, in that sense, uh, were those who made all this happen. And it was not a government in its good graces. It was the victims of harm, little children, now adults, who said, we have to stand up because what happened to us was not right. You say 80,000 found each other. What, what do you mean by that? Well, what that I mean is, uh, well, and, 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 and it's also figurative in the sense yeah, that sure. they didn't all literally find right. each other. Right. But what I mean is that there were residential schools in every region of this mm. country. Um, and there were a number of court cases brought, um, first as in individual cases initially, and then as class actions. There, were, there was a class action. I think in the end there were nine, or I've forgotten how many now uh, regional class actions there were. No, it was certainly significantly more than nine, but I know that in the end there were nine territorial and provincial courts that had to all agree to essentially merge the class action to make it a national one. And I, by the way, am the one commissioner who is not a lawyer, so I don't want mm. to get I don't want to get uh, tripped up over the terminology. But I do know that that's how it began. Um, and then in the end, it became um, for expediency of time and everything else, and it was a 
it was a really important role that the Canadian courts played in their dexterity and their ability to move quickly and their ability to collaborate so that this could be dealt with. Would you say as so one and and the 80,000 is is in the sense that that's how many were represented right. as the estimate the best estimate number of living survivors of the residential schools. Would you say so 2009 2015 ongoing for many many years we see it in the news we hear you know it's on radio shows people are interviewed books have been written would you say Canadians are still really not even close to having a, a, a fair sense of what actually happened? Uh, do we do we get it? Uh, I well, first of all, I'll say that you know I live in the world of everyday Canadians, and I'm all over the country, and I'm you know in and out of taxis and in and out of hotels and so on. And and the question often comes up of what do you do? Mm. And when I say Truth and Reconciliation Commission, there are still an extraordinary number of people who say, what's that? What's that? Who have no idea. So they don't even know that there was a commission. A lot of people will know that there were residential schools, and I think it is correct to say over the course of the last seven years that far more people know of the existence of residential schools than was the case before. But I still do think that um, it's a it's a still relatively small circle that, that actually has any understanding of what happened in those schools and their particular and damaging nature. Um, there are still people who are quick to say, yeah, well, I went to boarding school too, and yeah, it was tough, so what's the big deal? Right. Um, right. Not registering the extreme differences of, first of all, not being in a boarding school that even speaks the language that you speak, uh, not having access to your parents, not having access to your siblings, not being able to um, go home uh, or be released from home, except um, at, on the authority not of your parents, but of the people running the schools. It seems like, as you say that, you know, to me, it seems like such an outrage. And it's easy to stand on the other side of something like this and look back and say, oh, I would never have behaved that way. Were there people at the time saying that this was an outrage? Yes, there were, and there, there docu there's documentation of people who spoke up and who were fired, including mm. within the federal government. Uh, one of the uh, increasingly well-known names is a man named Dr. Peter Bryce, who was from here in Ontario, um, who did a review in the early 1900s of the residential schools it happened that they were in Western Canada and expressed his grave concerns to the then Deputy Minister Duncan Campbell Scott and he was uh, he, he called it in fact the state of um, that in some of the schools that he inspected uh, the death rate was 40 to 60 percent um, from epidemics such right. as tuberculosis and so on and um, he called it a national crime and he was fired um, in that sense of not outright fired, but uh, shunted off to a siding, special projects, any of those terminologies that right. we use when we want to silence and uh, diminish someone until he retired. And then in the 20s, when he did, did fully retire, he published his own record of it. So the point is that the 1920s, if we didn't know already within government, which we did, um, it was well known um, and documented. The media was part of that. Um, and we did nothing. Um, there were there's lots of documentation of, of chiefs and communities expressing concerns. There are cases of people who worked as staff for the churches who wrote letters internally about their concerns about the treatment of the children, not having enough food or clothing for them. They too were silenced and fired. There were very many known cases of uh, pedophilia 
And um, it was the practice that, which we've all become now familiar with and outraged by, by the, by the, the feature film Spotlight. Mm. But that was happening in Canadian residential schools and where um, clergy were being relocated to other places rather than being dealt with and certainly rather than criminal charges being laid. Do you think, can we even talk about truth and reconciliation? And I'd love to know what you mean by that, uh, you know, collectively as, as a Canadian. What, the, what does that mean uh, to us as Canada and as Canadians, as politicians and teachers and so on? But can we even have reconciliation if you're still getting in taxi cabs, if you're still meeting people along the street, if I'm still meeting people who don't even know that something like this existed or they're equivocating? Uh, you know, their, their stay in a boarding school with what actually maybe happened in residential school systems. So, so, in other, so I guess there's a few questions there, I suppose, but... Well, I think one of the things, though, is I think there is this factor that we know in human nature, which is kind of the, the competition of victimhood, you know. Mm. Oh, yeah, well, you should see what happened to me. Right. Well, right. you know, that... When I was a kid. Uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and so, you know, that is kind of in our nature. But I, I do think that, um, and, and we as commissioners were repetitive about this from the very beginning, that reconciliation, to your question, is not a quick thing. We mm. had residential schools in this country. In fact, there are some schools were not government-sanctioned, they, but they predate Confederation. The oldest residential school, longest running in the entire country, is here in this province of Ontario, in Brantford, Brantford. the Mohawk Institute, also known as the Mush Hole and it operated from the 1830s right up until the 1970s. Um, so it, 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 um, um, it took a long, long time, is my point, for us to get into the state of affairs that we are in today where we have so many generations, we estimate seven generations of residential school students who then, as children do, they learn what they're raised with and then they raise their children with what they learned. Right. And so it perpetuates itself, and that's what we mean by the intergenerational impacts, uh, which are continuing, are rampant, and are resounding um, and radiating outward with, with the, you know, the, the demographics of more and more generations and more and more children. So if we don't arrest that, uh, we'll continue to be investing. Trans, trans, transgenerational trauma, almost, in a sense. Uh, not almost, absolutely. It, it absolutely. Is. Absolutely. But the point is this, that it took us a long time to get to the state, and we, I think, are naive to think it's going to be a quick fix, an infusion of a few dollars, a little right. housing project here, a little suicide prevention there that's going to make it all go away. We need to have a really um, aggressive transformation of our systemic approaches to things and our systemic attitudes towards peoples in this country. And I think it, it, the calls to action, which are the conclusions of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, delve into that, knowing that, first of all, it is going to take time, and we need to sign up for the long haul and not as a short-term, you know, one government wonder and expect any one government at any one level of governance to be able to fix it all. And it is a non-partisan issue because these schools were in operation over the course of many different governments of many different stripes in all jurisdictions. Um, and it is a, um, a, a, you know, a multi-generational task, including a really vital role for the many new Canadians now who make up such an important demographic within Canada, who need to know what country did we come to, um, what is its beauty, what is its worth, what are its benefits, what are those things that we are going to embrace 
that are so much better perhaps in many cases than where we came from, but also what are those things that are the snags, that are the, that are the, um, um, the legacies, that are the challenges, which we also must embrace because we are here and this belongs to all of us as we work for it as a Canadian society. Um, the other thing I want to say to your question though, which is really about how fast or what can we expect around all this? Do we, are we more than just scratching the surface? Mm -hmm. What we saw over the course of the Commission's lifetime is a, 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 an importantly growing presence of non-Indigenous people. Hmm. Uh, we had major national events in seven uh, major Canadian centres and at the first of those about 10% of the people who came, and I'm talking about tens of thousands of people at wow. these gatherings, uh, about 10% were non-Indigenous and by the time we got to the seventh one at that, those national gatherings happened over the course of three and a half years in the middle of our work, 60% um, of the people there were non-Indigenous. And, and I think that there's great hope in that because to me what it says is that, what it says is what I always thought to be true is indeed true, is that most people are good, that mm. Canadians have good heart. We've seen that this week with the incredible across Canada response to what happened in Quebec City. Um, people respond when they're affronted with something that is not right. Um, and so I think um, our sense is we need to tackle the ignorance because once people know what happened, um, their own sense of, of outrage will kick in because we do have uh, a built-in notion as a country of, of what is right and what is fair. And, and I, I have not yet met a non-Indigenous person in this work who hasn't, um, first of all, usually it begins with this, I had no idea. Right. I, no one ever taught me that. Um, were there any around here? You know, right. those are the kinds of questions people ask. And the second thing that people ask in various ways is, what can I do? What can mm. we do? Mm. This is not right. And people people are properly outraged and especially when they realize um, you know because it's always a trigger for us that that um, this was children these were children mm, mm. they were children right they were little Taken children from their families yeah yeah and yeah. Um, and not protected yeah uh, not even based not even adequately provided for much less protected and certainly not taught and so then when we see people who are chronically at the bottom end of the socioeconomic um, um, measuring sticks, um, you, you know, factoring in huge childhood trauma that first of all we, is well known neurologically blocks ability to learn things, but secondly people are trying to learn in second languages. You know, mm. the infusion mm. of language training and so on that we provide for newcomers to Canada, where have we ever provided that for Indigenous communities? I've never seen it. Um, the, um, the, the emergency housing and so on that we provide. I don't, I don't see that in Indigenous communities that are chronically riddled with, uh, first of all, non-drinkable water still in so many communities, um, houses that are moldy and falling down where 16, 18 people are living in, in housing that's inadequate. We, we, we have structured ourselves and reallocated re ourselves geographically so that we are blind to each other, so right. that we don't have mm. to see what's there in the midst of our country. In fact, most Canadians don't know our country all that well. We don't know the far-flung parts of it. And, and in many, many 
examples of the uh, First Nations communities, that's exactly where we've shoved the Indigenous peoples right. is to the far-flung right. right. parts of it. And, and we don't go, we don't see, we don't know, and therefore we don't have to worry or think about it. So if we had a big whiteboard here in the room and, 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 and a, a marker uh, tackling the ignorance, is it, is it bottom down, is it top-down and bottom-up? Is it, is, it, is it curriculum at a grassroots level in, in primary schools? It's in is our it? 94 calls to action, and it's spelled out clearly there. It's in the schools, it's in academia, it's in our professional associations, it's in our public services, it's in our faith communities, it's in our social services. It's in the training of our professional people, the doctors, the lawyers, the social workers, the teachers who are working with Indigenous populations all the time, often without having the slightest idea who they're dealing with. It's tackling it on all those fronts. It's addressing, there was an announcement I, I saw two weeks ago of a commitment, which I was happy to see, uh, of renewing and revising the pledge which mm. new Canadian citizens will now begin to make, and that is that they will not only commit to obeying the laws of Canada, but also honoring the treaties, mm. um, the founding treaties uh, with the Indigenous peoples of Canada. They're just words, so all of a but sudden, it's, language and words become uh, everything becomes. Language important. and words are hugely important. I, I believe they are hugely important. Uh, I think that's one of the struggles we face, frankly, is that we don't even know how to refer to each right. other and what to call each other. Right. Um, you know, even the phrase that I've already used, non-Indigenous, nobody wants to be called a non-something. <laughs> right. But, you know, we need to struggle with that, I mm -hmm. think, a bit, and mm -hmm. it's mm -hmm. why we have seen language evolve. I mean, the fact is we have incredible diversity of indigeneity within Canada. Um, you know, um, 50 or 60 primary um, Indigenous nation groups, and within that, because of government laws and structures, you know, over 600 just First Nations alone, which is, you know, individual communities. That's the terminology that's currently used. But we've also had language that's evolved from talking about Indians and the Indian Act, which is still on our books, the Aboriginal Peoples of Canada, which is in our Canadian Constitution, the Indigenous Peoples of Canada, which is what's reflected in the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, um, and that's before you get into talking about First Nations, Inuit right. and Métis, each of those having enormous diversity sure. within their own membership. So it's, it's complicated. I think we need to be kind to each other as we learn to ask questions respectfully and as we um, express genuine interest in understanding better. And, and one of the things I would hope from the perspective of Indigenous peoples is um, a patience, mm. because because the the fact is, because of what they've been forced to learn in the schools they've been forced to go to, they know a lot more about the non-indigenous peoples of Canada than than the reverse, and so the, the, and then they are the ones who have the answers to many of the questions sure. that non-indigenous Canadians have. So I hope people won't tire of explaining, and and I hope that. Uh, we will find quickly, as we are already seeing in many parts of the country, uh, revised new curriculum mm. created with Indigenous participation so that, the, so that it's authentic and there's shared ownership there and that we are not limiting ourselves to thinking that expertise only exists in academia, that there's all kinds of other expertise and we need to make so sure good. that we've got 
the well, right expertise let's actually in the room. Get, let's actually invite them into the conversation, the yeah. indigenous folk. Let's actually get their ideas and opinions. I mean, what a novel idea. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's yeah, brilliant. It's utterly brilliant. You're, you're, I mean, it seems to me on, on so many levels, uh, 94 calls to action, we must barely be scratching the surface. And yet you seem to be quite hopeful. Well, you know, we, we were very intentional in how we went about our work. Um, and, you know, I, I don't want to be glib about it because it, I won't live to see the payoff, I'm mm -hmm. sure. Um, but I have to believe that there are always good people in our midst and whatever we have done as commissioners, other good people will continue to take up the mantle and will carry forward that work. Um, we all have children. If we teach our children properly, they will do their part as well, and it will carry forward. Um, I mean, we've seen that in the evolution of our um, uh, our, our uh, social um, frameworks over time, and we've seen recently um, the response that we get when people feel those things are threatened. Mm. You know, the the willingness of people to step forward and say. D don't mess with what we have had. It's really important. I think I think the risk is that people will doze off. We can't afford to fall asleep in the midst of all this. Right. It, we need active attention. And you know, so to the word empathy, and which I know is a big part which of which is kind of why you're in town, isn't it? Well, it is, but it, it, for the conversation, yes. And it's such a beautiful word. It even has a nice sound to it. Um, but it has to go way beyond the heart and the wringing of hands. You know, it has to be action-based. Um, you know, seeing someone and, and, um, and having a feeling about how that must be and having an insight or an understanding won't change anything if there isn't action to try to address the things that need to be addressed. And they can be small things and, and they can be big things and they need to be both of those and lots of things in the middle. And that's what we've tried to tackle with our calls to action. Um, I started to say that with our work, because we knew it would take a long time, that's why we put so much focus on attention. Um, if we have an entire adult population, as we do right now, that basically roams around in total ignorance of all this and says, I didn't know anything about it, no one ever taught me, then the only way we can shift that is starting to teach our children those sure. things that we were not taught. And that's going to take the time that it takes for them to get through the school system. But we should be investing in a new generation of adults who at least have the basics um, of, of the history of Canada. I mean, this is the residential schools were not like a little sidebar thing mm. that happened in Canada. In we're celebrating our 150th birthday this year. We had residential schools, as I've already noted, pre-Confederation. It's a ribbon that runs through our entire mm -hmm. history as a country. The last schools closed in 1996. So it's not a small story. It's a, it's a built-in core storyline of our history as a country. And we, we need to uh, make sure that if we don't want that to be a continuing ribbon, then we've got to stop doing the things that we were doing that caused such havoc. The thing that I think we haven't grasped fully um, is the extent to which it wasn't the schools. It wasn't the schools. It, it was the rupture of children. Just pick it up. Hi. Just 
Okay, so just leave it off the hook. There. Okay, editing time. So. She left an envelope. I'm lost. Just come back in. You, you. It, it was the rupture of the schools. You could come back in with that line if you can pick that thought up, or I can ask you another okay. question. So I'm circling around this a little bit, but I. I want you to understand why we were so intentional in some of the things we did with the Commission. We invested so much in talking to schools, talking to departments of education, talking to ministers of education, talking to the Council of Ministers of Education, because we feel teaching our children is a core part of that work. But we also know that um, we teach our children in silos right now, the way we're structured as a society. So one of the things that we did very intentionally as part of our work is we organized massive education days where we brought indigenous and non-indigenous young people together. Right. And there were about 15,000 of those in various parts of the country. And so many of those children said they had never sat with each other before. Getting goosebumps. It's Ever. Cool. It's neat. And um, so to have encounters as well. So we're not just learning in our heads, but we are creating the possibility of relationships and reality and real experiences where uh, children and young people can come to know each other. Um, and, you know, when I remember the schools, I think about this one young woman in, in Montreal. I can still hear her. And she was shaking. She was so angry. And she said, you have taught us about the American Civil Rights Movement. You have taught us about apartheid. You've taught us about the conflict in the Middle East and the Jewish-Palestinian conflict. You've taught us about the Balkans. You've taught us about North Africa, uh, uh, Northern Ireland, rather. You have not taught us the truth about our own country. And these young people were enraged. And they were saying at the same time, thank you, like finally, finally, someone has taught us these things. And finally, we have met these friends. Um, I think that if we are far more intentional about how we restructure our society and allow for meaningful encounters, then we can stop living as strangers in each other's midst. It's almost in a sense, you know, to your, you're almost coming full circle, your comment about the 80,000 finding each other. In a sense, that empathy, you know, I was going to ask you, you've answered it already, but I was going to ask you, how do you, you know, in a world that seems to be going so myopic and kind of cocooning and it's all about me, how do you get somebody to care about somebody else? And it sounds like you share, you, what was the phrase you said? You know, creating the possibility of relationships, you know, meaningful encounters. And that, uh, that for me, is a the, the, the huge insight. Right. Well, and the other thing that we did, knowing that, you know, we were three little commissioners with a five-year mandate that ended up being pushed to six and change, uh, we enlisted the um, it's a moral and active support of uh, some 80 prominent Canadians who were prepared to stand as TRC honorary witnesses. And they were from very wide walks of society, and I say was, is, uh, they are from. And they, they said that they would not only support the work of the commission, but they would support the work of ongoing reconciliation. Mm. So I'm talking about former prime ministers, former right. governors general, former auditors general, um, judges, um, playwrights, authors, um, um, teachers and educators, 
um, people who work in uh, multicultural organizations, uh, professors. These are people who already have huge spheres of influence, but who said that they would use their circles and the, the frames that they have available to them um, to share what they had come to learn. And what's significant is that they had the opportunity to hear firsthand from residential school survivors as they shared their childhood experiences. And it's the same thing I was saying about the young people. When there's actually a human encounter, right. something can shift. Something changes. When, when people who have been in charge of these files in government say, I did not know that, and yet, I mean, imagine a former Minister of Indian Affairs saying, well, yes, I knew about residential schools, but I didn't really get it I until really get it. I heard a survivor share their childhood experiences. It, it, you it can't shifted. argue with someone's story, can you? It's kind of it's kind of hard to argue with somebody's well, story. Well, you know, we know that in Canada, we know it in the wider world, frankly, when we hear the the, the experiences of Holocaust survivors, um, it's it, because it's European based. We understand it better. Um, you need to let her in. Um, because it is European-based, we understand it better because we always pay more attention to things that are European-based than we, than we do things right, that are homegrown. Right, That's right, been right, our history. Right, right. Um, but it means that um, as we have opportunity to really understand those experiences, and that's why for us one of the legacy pieces was the establishment of the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation where all of these shared experiences have been recorded and are there for ongoing reference. We've got to wrap it up. Last question, 94 calls to action. Where can I find those? www.trccallstoaction.com TRC Calls to Action even. Just Google that. Google that and you've got it. Uh, Commissioner Wilson, thanks so much for your time today uh, in town to speak at an event with the Canadian Race Relations Foundation at the University of Toronto. Real pleasure and thank you for the great work that you've done and are clearly continuing to do. Great, thank you very much. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.